Hello, welcome to a episode of the Africa podcast. My name is Mikey Mahenda. Today on the series, we have Professor Clive Holes, who did his studies at Cambridge University and has been at Oxford for the last 17 years. He's a professor emeritus um, for the study of the contemporary Arab world. It is an honor to have Clive join us on the series. Clive, welcome to Africa. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually must say, I, I, I'm actually nine years retired now. So I, I, I still have a connection with Oxford. Emeritus means mutaqaid uh, in Arabic, if you like, retired. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm still very active. Um, yeah, for, for somebody who's retired, you're pretty busy, I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Well, I think you've got to keep your brain active. And, um, you know, I've been involved with the kind of stuff I do for a very long time now. So, yeah, yeah I've got many ongoing projects at the moment. Yeah. So, so you grew up in the UK. Um, yeah. What got you interested in um, studying Arabic and Turkish as your BA at Cambridge in the 60s? Well, um, I was actually admitted to read French and German. And I did the first year doing French and German. At the end of that, I couldn't understand why I was still doing it because there were so many more interesting things to do. So I toyed with the idea of doing Chinese, um, decided not to do that. And then I, I actually was initially more interested in Turkish than anything. But I discovered you couldn't do Turkish in Cambridge in the 60s without doing Arabic as well. So I did Arabic and Turkish as a degree. Um, I, I changed subject after a year and graduated in 69 and then went off to um, I was originally meant to be going to Turkey as a volunteer teacher in a place called Erzurum in eastern Turkey. That was cancelled at the last minute and I got rerouted to Bahrain. Uh, so I suddenly found myself going to the Gulf in 1969. Um, with my freshly minted BA in Arabic and Turkish. Yeah, a certified expert at that point. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. What you get in Cambridge in the 60s, you've got a lot of the Mu'alaqat and the Quran and all the classical stuff, but you yeah. didn't learn to speak a word of, of, of Arabic. When I landed at the airport in September 69, I was with two guys who spoke no Arabic, my, my, who were also teachers of English like me. They said, what are they saying? You know, I said, well, search me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Because I, I couldn't understand, um, you know, anything that anybody was saying. Because I was I was good at the classical stuff, but not at, at ordinary spoken Arabic. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, those early years. So in your bio, it says that you served as an overseas career officer for the British Council. Yeah. Well, um, the first. Yeah, that's true. The first two years in in Bahrain, I was not. I was actually what's called a, a volunteer. I was work, I, a bit like um, the, what used to be called the Peace Corps in America. Um, this was uh, United Nations Association. So I taught English for two years in a it's uh, a madrasa iadadiya, as they called it, an intermediate school in Bahrain. And then after two years, I joined the British Council, which is like responsible for educational and cultural relations between the UK and countries overseas. And I, 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 I served in um, Kuwait, um, in uh, Algeria, um, in Thailand. I was, there, I was in the Southeast Asia for a couple of years. And then um, when, I, when I left, um, I, 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 I was a couple of years in Oman, um, in the, the Sultanate of Oman. Um, so I, I, I spent about six, seven years in, 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 the, in the Gulf altogether, two years Bahrain, two years Kuwait, two, three years in, in, in Oman and a couple of years uh, elsewhere in, in Algeria, North Africa, which is a very interesting place. Um, and so I, I was always connected with Arabic. After I got my degree, 
um, I, I was in the Arab world for a large part of the time. And um, uh, you probably noticed from my bio, I took time out to do a PhD in yeah. Arabic sociolinguistics in the 70s. So I've been involved yeah. with Arabic really my whole life since I was so, 20. I want to ask you about that term. Um, when I first reached out to you, um, you made sure to... Um, to point out and to guarantee that I at least knew the difference between, you know, linguistics and sociolinguistics. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you so want I, me to? Yeah. Tell me in your words and as if you were speaking to an audience of fifteen-year-olds. Okay. What, what does that really mean? What does sociolinguistics? Well, mean? It, it, um, you know, language is is a formal. Um, it's, it can be studied studied formally. Chomsky and linguistics, for example, Noam Chomsky, the famous American linguist. Um, he um, didn't do sociolinguistics. He didn't look at language as an embedded social phenomenon. He was looking at it as a formal system of rules. What sociolinguists do is they look at the way language evolves and changes um, in real time, in real societies, with real people. Okay, So they go out and collect data about the way people speak, and they're interested in things like how languages change over time and why they change over time, what sorts of social changes cause linguistic changes, and how people use language to express social identities. So, I mean, classically, Arabic is a good example of what's called a diglossic language where you have one form, which is what they call the lower form or the, you know, the amiya, as you would call it. And you have the fusha, which is a high level thing. And um, people look at, um, for example, and I've looked at this, for example, I'll give you an example is better than just the uh, th theory. Um, I got very interested in the ex-president of Egypt, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was president up until 1970, who gave a lot of, is, is, is famous for his rhetoric. When you look at his speeches, you see how clever he was in the use of language because he used to alternate between the high form of the language and the ordinary form, which ordinary Egyptians speak. In his time, maybe 70% of Egyptians were illiterate. So you have to be able to level with an audience if you're a president. And he was a master, an absolute master. And I can give you some examples later on, if you like, of how he did it. Yeah, um, yeah. He, he, he used to constantly use this quite consciously to make connections because the, the colloquial languages has a kind of domestic, intimate feel to it. And the high level language is much more abstract and to do with general political principles. So he would typically explain the principle of al-ishtirakiyya, you know, which is a big deal for NASA socialism. And then he'd go on, explain it, what it meant to ordinary people. But he'd do that in Egyptian colloquial, and he do it in the same speech. So that's one example of how, you know, Arab societies are like quite a few other societies in that they have these two forms of the language, high and low. But and, and studying how people use them is one of the things that sociolinguists do. But they also do things, and I've done this as well, that is look at how societies change. In my case, um, Bahrain, a place I spent many years in, I taught there for two years and then I, I did field work for my PhD there. And there you have a, a, a very distinct split between one half of the population and the other half. It's usually thought of in sectarian terms, Sunnah versus Shia. And this is true to a certain extent, but actually it's nothing to do with religion. It's to do with origin. The, the so-called Arab, who are, who are, I mean, 
about half the population originally come from Central Arabia. The Shia, or the, the Baharna, as they call themselves, the Arab on one hand, the Sunnis, the, the Baharna, the Shia, they are um, a very different group of people who've historically always lived on the coast of Arabia, if you like. The, 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 the Arab came in much later in the 17th, 18th century. But because of the social distinction between the two, which is partly religious, they didn't mix with each other. So when you went, when, when you went to Bahrain in the 60s, if you, if you knew um, the, the place, you could tell within five, five, well, five seconds of somebody beginning to speak to whether they were Shi'i or Sunni, okay? Yeah. And um, this division started to become eroded in the 70s and 80s because of deliberate policy by the government to merge the two communities and also the, the employment patterns. So over the years, if you like, there's been a gradual um, coming together of the two kinds of Arabic. But what sociolinguists do is they look at how that happens. Is it equal or is there a kind of, you know, is the one form of the language which tends to become favoured? And of course, there is what you call the prestige variety. Now, in, in the Gulf, the prestige variety is what's spoken by the Arab. And they are from Kuwait to the UAE. They speak very similarly. The Baharna is the minority and tends to, in public contexts, speak like the, the, the other side, if you see what I mean. And you get this also in the, in the Levant, you know. I mean, um, you, in Lebanon, you have uh, obvious, obvious differences between the, the Christians and, and the Muslims in, in Beirut. I mean, there's, a, there's an accent difference. And uh, I'm, I don't know that area well enough, but, but I know that that exists and that language is a badge of identity, just as it is in places like Bahrain or in Egypt. I mean, um, when people come to Cairo from the south of Egypt to work, what do they do? They adapt. They start trying to speak like Kyrene uh, people because the, the prestige dialect in Egypt is Cairo. Whereas in, in Lebanon, it's Beirut or, or it's Damascus in the, the general area. And in the Gulf, it's the Arab dialect, not the other one, which is very different from it, which is not much studied, actually. Um, How long? Yeah, go on. Let me ask you a question about this, this idea of prestige dialect. Um, and you let me use Nasset as an example uh, to frame my question. Um, the idea that there would be a, a public figure that uses rhetoric to galvanize the masses yeah. isn't yeah. new, obviously. That's not a no, new no, thing. No. Um, and, and that person being... Um, being strategic enough to use different registers of a dialect yeah. in order to engage the broadest possible public. Yeah. Um, if we were speaking 200 years ago, what would those registers look like? And would that strategy also be effective? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. But of course, we don't know the answer because we don't really have recordings or any real idea of how people were speaking 200 years ago. That's one of the problems. I mean, you can extrapolate from what people say about how they spoke to what probably was the case. But the impression, uh, certainly from studying um, Arab rhetoric, I would say that be before Abdel Nasser, I mean, when you had the age of monarchies in, in the Arab world, I mean, you had them and you still have them um, in Jordan and you used to have them in Syria. You used to have them in Egypt. They've all gone now. But um, basically, 
if you were an autocratic ruler at the top of a, of a, of a, of a monarchy, you tended to speak. I mean, when I say speak, I don't mean speak the language as, you know, sort of naturally. You would project yourself using the standard language. Abdel Nasser is an interesting man because he's really the first person in the Arab world who threw that out the window. And then if you look at people who followed him, like, say, Gaddafi in Libya or Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq, they did exactly what he did, but not as well. <laughs> you know, he, he was very good at that. But everybody uh, who has been really a kind of on the Republican, non-monarchical side has tended to try and use ordinary Arabic in some way um, to level with the people. Um, one interesting one who didn't do this, I mean, King Hussein of Jordan, who, who died now th nearly 30 years ago, he always, pretty well, always, always spoke in the standard language in public occasions. The, 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 the recently deceased Sultan of Oman, uh, uh, Qabus, Sultan Qabus, similarly, I mean, I worked in, in, in Oman when he was um, a ruler and, and I heard him speak many, many times. But in public, he would certainly only use the standard language. When he got sitting on the on a carpet, he used to do, do tours of the country when he would just meet ordinary people and sit on a mat with them. Then I think it was a different thing entirely because you can't talk like that to people face to face. You can talk, you know, in a very grandiloquent, classical way if you're doing a kind of a big deal, kind of a general speech about the future of the country. But I think Abdel Nasir was the first to break the mold. And, I, you know, we don't really have records of, of the bygone rulers and how they spoke. We only have reports of what they said. And, and reports are usually a very um, unreliable guide to the actual words which were used. Um, I mean, the, there was a, a governor of Iraq called Al-Hajjaj, you know, in the ninth century, who was famous again for his rhetoric. And there are plenty of quotations from him about the uh, the what he thought of the Iraqis, because <laughs> he thought they were um, not very um, sort of reliable politically. But all these have come to us in classical Arabic because the problem is that the history of Arabic is that that's what happens. Everything is redacted. And people, you get the impression everybody was going around speaking classical Arabic when, of course, we know, we, we know it's not true. But that's what the impression is that you get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me, explain what that sentence just, the sentence you just said just meant. You said, the history of Arabic, everything is redacted. Yeah, because it's all, it's all passed on. I mean, the, the way in which history is done, I mean, oral history, you, you read any book of Arab history pretty well, or any, any classical work, and it's, I was told by so-and-so, who was told by so-and-so, who was told, you know, you, you have this long, long, and it's incredibly long sometimes, and it goes right back to the hadith. You, you know, that's how, until very recently, history was done. It was essentially an oral process. And even still to today, in places like Saudi Arabia, until only 70, 80 years ago, you look at tribal history, and it's exactly the same. That's how it was done. Um, and it, who wrote, wrote this down? The scribes wrote it down. But they were the part of the small proportion of the population which was competent in the standard language. Until very recently, people were not. Even in my lifetime, most people struggle with classical Arabic, you know, certainly to write it, they do. They may be able to understand it a bit, you know. 
Uh, but I mean, the, 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 the redacted is all I mean is that, that it's put into a form um, which is non-local. <laughs> Whatever the accent was, it all seems to come out as the same language. When we know absolutely from the reports of the Arab grammarians themselves that there were at the time of the Prophet, there were endless dialects in the Arabian Peninsula. And we know something about them. I mean, in fact, uh, one of my interests is looking at the survival into modern Arabic of very ancient fe features like um, Kashkasha, for example, this so-called thing where people say ch instead of k, chibir yeah. and betich for, be for, a, for usually a female form. I mean, that existed at the time of Sibawehi, but you would never know that unless Sibawehi told you so, because nobody reports what people actually said. They redact it, as I would say. Yeah, they they turn it into a, a into into a more generally understood form of the language. So I want to I have up on the screen one of one of your books, Modern Arabic yeah. Structures, Functions, yeah. and Varieties. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you to tell the story as best you can of when and where and how modern standard Arabic emerged. Okay, well, the the it, it's there are huge gaps. Uh, one needs to stop. There are huge gaps in the story. Because we don't really know. We can only extrapolate. We can look at what happened historically and make some sort of um, assumptions. Okay, so we know that the initial situation was one of tribal dialects. I mean, it, 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 and in fact, this has become even more obvious now because a guy called Ahmed Al Jalad, who's been working in, in mainly in Syria and Jordan, has been looking at stuff which was written on, on rocks 500 years before the Prophet. And we can see that there were significant differences even then between what we think of as standard Arabic and, and uh, what these people um, were writing. Anyway, uh, we know from the reports of the grammarians that, that there were tribal dialects, but we know very little detail. And what we do know is that around about the end of the ninth century, when the Islamic empire was getting, um, uh, was really at its height in terms of geographical spread, there was a movement to standardize the language. Now, this is everybody's heard of Sibawehi, but there were many others, and they were based largely in southern Iraq, Kufa and Basra. We know this. And, you know, the first, the first um, uh, canonical book of, about the grammar of Arabic was Sibawehi's Kitab. First, I mean, there were others, but, but the first really comprehensive one. And if you read that, I mean, it's very obvious that there were dialects, but he was selecting what he thought of as the best. It was very prescriptive, you know, and um, his reason, we, we don't have the time to go into the kind of reductive reasoning he used to use. But in the end, what happened was around about the end of the ninth century, a form of Arabic emerged, which we now think of as Fusha. It wasn't called Fusha then. It's that's something much more recent. But that's where you first get the, uh, the, the idea of creating a standard language, because nobody, as far as I, um, I can see, actually spoke the way that the grammarians described it. It was like a pick and mix. Uh, and they tell you where they, where they got their, they tell you that some of it came from Bedouin, some of it came from the so-called Ayam al-Arab stories, um, you know, there was variation and they tried to reduce the variation. So that became a kind of a standard language, uh, uh, certainly for, of government, 
I, I wouldn't say that really this language was much used by ordinary people. Not, not, not really at the time we're talking. It was an elite thing. And all the poetry, the Mutanabis and, and all the, you know, uh, famous poets of, of the Arab world at uh, this period, um, that's not how they spoke. <laughs> that, that's how they wrote. Um, uh, and, and like I say, it was, a, it was a language of empire, a language of high culture, which was kind of came out of, um, uh, of Iraq. And, and the, the increasing civil, civilization, if you like, the building of big cities like Baghdad, same period, you know, um, uh, Cairo a bit later, Al-Qahira, you know, I mean, that, that, that's like 10th, 10th century. Um, so urbanization, um, settlement, culture went along with the creation of a standard language. Was there a, before you keep on going, let me just yeah. ask a question. Was there a informal or formal governing body who sort not, of well, codified this and made this? Yeah, not really. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, 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 uh, Majamia, the, the, these are the, uh, the, the so-called, um, uh, Arab language, um, uh, societies for want of a better word, um, didn't really emerge until much later. I mean, the first one was in Syria at the end of the 19th century. And that brings us, what, what happened, let, let, let me just resume the, the historical narrative because it makes it clear. So we had the height of Arab empire and then of course things went down downhill. And basically, I mean, from the uh, sort of early 16th century, the Turks took over. I mean, pretty well the whole area of, the, of Sham and Egypt and large parts of what we now think of as the Arab world were, were, were being ruled over by the Turks. Um, and, and Arabic has always continued along as a religious language for everybody, the Turks, the Persians. There was never any, any change in that. But you got the rise of Persian and Turkish as, as vernacular languages in parts of the, you know, where Turkish is normally spoken, where Persian is normally spoken. And um, certainly Arabic culture continued. Everybody thinks of this period I'm talking about as a period when everything went down. Um, it's probably untrue, actually. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a period where, you know, there are lots and lots of poets that are now famous. The famous ones are all back in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century. There was a long period of about 500 years when it seems to have been quite quiet on, on the cultural front. Probably wrong um, in, in some ways, but that's the kind of general thought. And then we get the Nahda, so-called when the Arabs, it's a political movement, obviously, um, where the Arabs were, were wanting to, 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 to throw off, um, you know, the Turkish uh, uh, yoke, if you like. Yeah. Um, and that, 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 that starts really at the end of the 18th century and in a small way. And the big time in the 19th, from the middle of the 19th century, you've got this movement um, for political um, independence which went hand in hand with cultural independence and the, the reinvention if you like of of standard arabic and then you get the majamia you know the uh, the uh, uh, arabic uh, language um uh, kind of bodies which what years are we talking about here well uh, i think the, the, the uh, date wise i think um 1919 was the, in syria the the one in egypt was a bit later i think that was the 1930s and those two were the first two. And then since then, more recently, almost every Arab country seems to seems to have a, uh, a, 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 a group that um, well, when when people say MSA, when they say modern standard Arabic, they're talking about the 
the Arabic language that was sort of codified around the early 20th century? Yeah, pretty much. Um, codified is, a, you know, everybody had their own ideas and, and, you know, the Syrians would produce new words. I mean, it seems to have been like, especially associated with um, new, new vocabulary associated with things like um, business, commerce, science, because there weren't words. Uh, mind you, um, the tr- that's true of every single language. I mean, when you get a new co- a new area of, of human activity, every I mean, English has done the same. I mean, you look at the Internet, you know, we didn't have any of this vocabulary even 20 years ago. And it's all been invented and, and been largely copied then by other. I mean, you know, English has certainly led in this particular instance. And I suppose it also in the 19th century, I mean, you've got um, massive amounts of new creation of new words, you know, a word like hated for telephone, telephone, it was the original thing. But then then somebody comes and no, 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 we want some pure Arabic words for things like that. You know, instead of bars, the Saudis invented hafila, you know, because on the basis of omnibus, something that includes everything. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, um it's been a it's it's not it's it's not a neat process everybody seemed to invent their own words and the the the, the newspapers i mean the press was the thing that really um kind of determined what i mean so you know uh to give somebody the green light you know uh to pull the rug from under somebody's feet you know, so you get a lot of translationese, what we call calc, um, that came into Arabic um, through translation. So it wasn't those weren't invented by the uh, the um, the Arabic language academies. Um, they just came in. It, journalists just translate, and and the words, um, you know, what about umla sahaba for hard currency? It's a mistranslation. Sahab doesn't mean that. Hard. Yeah, okay. A better word would be sulb if you want a word for that, because it's like it's it's like rock. But sab doesn't mean that. It means hard yeah. in, in the sense of difficult. difficult. Yeah. It's, it's a mistranslation, but it's in the language now. So um, the modern language, um, okay, the language academies had a role in saying, do this, don't do this, this is pure, you know. But real language is, is uncontrollable, and the press yeah. basically has moulded. I mean, if you look at modern standard Arabic compared with the classical language, there's a huge amount of new vocabulary which is based on translation ease from other languages, mainly yeah. English. Yeah. And, and, and the language is, is, um, was never the same all over the world anyway. I worked in Algeria in the 70s, and um, the main newspaper is called Al-Mujahid, it was then. And that was issued in both French and, uh, and, and Arabic. And when I re- tried reading the Arabic, I couldn't understand a lot of it, because although it was supposed to be standard Arabic, a lot of the a lot of the words were were not you don't see them in the east of the Arab world you know um, it, it it was uh, so it's a bit of a myth that it's the same language everywhere and it always was a bit of a myth I mean the grammar is more or less the same but the vocabulary does depending on whether the, the colonial language was French or English it's it tends to be reflect that you know yeah um, I want to talk a, a little bit about um, um, literacy. Yeah. You know, you said Nasser when he was giving his speeches, which were, you know, 60 years ago, not too long, um, that 70% of the, the population was illiterate. Yeah. Um, and so my question to you is, 
2023, do you think more people read and write Arabic today than ever, ever before? I think more people understand the standard language than was true in the past. Um, whether people write it better is a good question, and it's a subject of a, a huge controversy now. I mean, I, I go to the Gulf quite a lot, to places like Oman and the UAE, and uh, what's happened is, of course, the English language private schools have taken off big time. So now you can walk down a shopping mall in Dubai, you can see black-clad female figures and you can overhear them talking in English to each other, which is totally incredible to me compared with the 70s when I first, late 60s. That was impossible. It just didn't occur. Nobody spoke English in the late, in the late 60s. It was just, but it, it, there's been a revolution. And I think what's happened and what is troubling a lot of um, people and governments and opinion formers is that Arab, the Arabic language is dying. People say this constantly because um, it's not used in certain areas of life. You know, if you're working in, a ba in banking or business or computers, you basically use English, uh, you, you know, it, as a work language. And, and there aren't even, people don't even know the words. Um, okay, you can, you know, there are, there are equivalents of, um, you know, upload, download and so on, because everybody knows these things. But the kind of general vocabulary, technical vocabulary, is not in Arabic, but it, but Arabic's not unusual. It's true of many languages because English has taken over, if you like, yeah. in, in the many areas of, of, of modern modern employment. But um, I, I remember I was on a plane back from. I'll tell you a story. I was on a plane back from the UAE. I'd been on a conference which was actually about the future of the Arabic language. That was the subject of the conference in the UAE. We had a lot of it, linguists from, from all over, Arabs and, and people like me from Europe and, and the States, getting together and, and discussing this. And I, I looked over next to me, uh, there was a guy uh, who was clearly from the UAE, and he was fiddling around with his phone. And he said, I said, uh, and, he, he, and I, could, I knew he spoke English because I'd heard him. Um, and I can't remember actually whether I spoke Arabic or English to him, come to think of it. But I, I asked him, I said, uh, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you something? And he said, no. And I said, um, you know, at work, what language? Because he, he, I got talking to him. He was going to Liverpool for some sort of postgraduate course. I think it was business studies. And I said, what language do you normally use at work? And he said, um, this. And he just produced a phone. You know, and and and, and uh, it was obvious what he meant. Well, he, he told me what he meant. You know, he used English the whole time, and 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 I said, well, when when do you use Arabic? Uh, he said, never. Are you you know? I, I, we just don't use it. We use it. Obviously, I use it to speak to people, but there was a big division really between writing and 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 speaking. You know, the world of work, I'm afraid, does not involve Arabic for a huge number of people are now in the Arab world. And that's what's really, really making people worried about. So, I mean, I understand the reasoning up until that last sentence, right? So at a conference, it's talking about the future of Arabic. Um, Why were we even having a conference about the future of Arabic? Why did we need one? We yeah, needed so, one because they were worried about it. <laughs> But why? What, what is the reason? So, like, let's because, say we're sitting at the table that they said. Well, the, the, go the Gulf is now. Helpful. Like I said, the Gulf. The, everybody, you know, um, has, has kind of twigged that if you want to get on in life, you've got to be. You can't just being in a, in a bubble, an Arabic bubble. 
you and this is true also of Jordan and it's true of Egypt now as well with the middle class the classes in places like Cairo. So everybody is getting into English and um, th this is it, it's causing a bit of a cultural kind of crisis of 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 of, of identity, if you like. Because the older generation, it mainly comes from the older generations uh, who don't remember it when it was like this, you know, didn't experience it. They were people who just uh, who were the only ones who had English in the old days. You know, the ordinary people didn't have it. Now it's not true. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the you know, the, all the, the nannies that come in, the English speaking nannies, the English speaking schools, the whole thing really is, is, is making people think, well, can't, do we actually... Can we actually really write Arabic anymore? And um, I, I think, well, we've suddenly we've suddenly gone to full screen. And uh, I mean, I think it's I, I think it's overplayed. I mean, when I'm asked this question, I say, well, Ara the Arab world isn't any different to anywhere else, to be honest. Uh, I mean, if you go to um, Southeast Asia, go to Vietnam, go to the Thailand or something like that you'll find very much the same sort of split between um, the world of work, if you like, uh, of modern work and the world of ordinary, of, you know, every, ordinary everyday speech. Yeah. Um, so it's not unique to the Arab world. It's just that we live in a different world from even 10 years ago, well, let alone 20, 30 years ago. What I'm trying to get at and what I'm having a hard time sort of wrapping my head around um, is I understand their, I understand the observation, right? Yeah. You walk down the street, all the signs are in in a Latin script, even if they are in uh, even if they're alluding to Arabic words. Um, people are texting back and forth. People are speaking in an increasingly globalized world and inc increasingly online. And the internet has sure. been written and created by English speakers right. largely. Yeah. I understand that. Um, what I'm trying to get at is what are the stakes. Why are they so worried? Why are people worried about this thing? This, uh, I mean, clearly well, it's not stopping economic development. Clearly no, it's not no, 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 no. What's no. the problem? Well, it, I think it, the answer to the question differs from country to country. And it depends upon the, in my opinion, anyway, the self-confidence of the governing group in each country we're talking about. I mean, where, where you have countries which are very heavily um, dependent on religion for legitimacy without naming names. Um, there is a feeling that um, if we lose Arabic as a, as a written language and we lose Arabic literature and we lose the ability to r understand anything written in, 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 in that, then where does that leave us as, as, a, as a country? Um, what... what sources of identity and legitimacy are there because there's a common perception that the spoken language isn't real arabic that real arabic is what you you know you get in books you get it in the quran you get it in poetry you get it in novels you get it in in um you know serious uh, writing if people can't uh, handle that anymore or don't want to or choose not to where does that leave us as a country in terms of our Arab identity. I think that's the worry. And that, that's why you're seeing on television, on the media, all kinds of reactions to that, which are a reaffirmation of, of Arabic culture. Uh, it, it's expressed in different ways. I mean, for example, in the UAE, um, 
there, there was um, there's now for the last oh it must be twenty years nearly now a paper a, 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 a program called Shair al Million, poet of the million. Now this is a, a poetry competition, but it's entirely in the local dialect. Nabati poet. It's so it's what we call what you referred to earlier as Nabati, and it's got to be in Nabati, and it's got to be according to certain rules, really, more or less, um, about the way Nabati poetry used to be written. When it, when it was still a, an oral uh, form, like 50 years ago, it's like harking back to the pre-literate, pre-modern period. Um, and that, that caused a reaction. <laughs> so uh, not long after, we had an, another program called Amira Shara, the Prince of Poets. Now, you can only do this in classical Arabic. Okay, but both of them are, are a reaction um, to the kind of globalization which you see in the lower Gulf. You know, all the skyscrapers, all the kind of razzmatazz, and the the um, you know the whole kind of globalized world, which which isn't really much to do with the original UAE. What what they want to hark back to is a um, novelty poetry, which is a ba absolute badge of identity for for these 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 countries okay even the rulers i mean sheikh uh, uh, muhammad in dubai he's, he's a well-known nabati poet um uh, sheikh zaid who died in uh, 20 years ago now he he's a well-known poet uh, he used to write a lot of stuff about about hunting for example um this is kind of identity but the other side of identity is the formal side of it that is we are not just uae we are Arabs and we belong to a big culture. And I think the, the, the identity crisis is that both these things are potentially being lost. And that's why you have programs like Sher Al Million and Amira Shuara. Um, so yeah. I, I think it's over. I think, I think, I think really um, it, it's overdone. Uh, I, I mean, this kind of sense of insecurity, but that's, I think, um, what are what there, the worry is yeah yeah no are there are there examples that you can point to like i don't know i'm, I'm I, you know obviously um a lot about this i don't know much but like could you are there examples like you could point to in in latin america or in southeast asia or, or, or africa where it's like listen they had the same concern and at some point they just you know, rode the wave and look, they're great. You know, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, you're asking me now about places I don't know much about. I mean, I've yeah. been to South America and I've been to Central America, but um, I mean, I did notice um, uh, certain things about what was going on in places like um, Peru um, and um, reactions to things like Catholicism, if you like. I mean, re what role does catholicism which is a, a kind of a religion of the of the of the, the oppressor if you like originally uh how has that played out i mean it, it's it's played out by being um kind of reinvented uh to involve local culture is the way i'd, I'd say it. Uh, i mean this is kind of not really relevant but i suppose it's kind of a, a rough and ready parallel that um you know local religions have 
come in and there's been like a, a, a symbiosis between Catholicism and, and the original religions, if you like, which would never have happened under Sp Spanish colonialism, if you like. But that's going, you know, the, the Spaniards left in the 19th century. But things are kind of been. But if you're asking about language, I, I don't think I can think of a, an example there. I mean, um, like Singapore, the, Singapore ah, fun operates functionally in English, right? Yes. Absolutely. That's but that's because um, it's the makeup of the population there. I mean, okay, there is a very it's mainly Chinese, but Chinese from different areas of China, and also there's a large Indian population and, and Malay of course population. A Malay po population. So, yeah. what do you have in common there? You have the colonial language, which in all cases was English. So, I, I mean, the seeds of it were there. And what what Singapore has done is cutting on to the fact that the the, the 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 passport to economic success is to be able to function in a globalized world. And but they they almost got that before everybody else because it's been that way a long time in Singapore now. Um, yeah. Uh, but culturally, I mean, like culturally, have they have they sacrificed something? Well, no, I'm not now. sure they have. Yeah, actually. it's been maintained in all kinds of ways. I mean, yeah. I know I know Malaysia, Singapore slightly, but only slightly. Um, but you do see, I mean, all the all the, the donor cultures, whether it's Indian, Chinese or, or Malay, are still there, certainly in food, certainly yeah, in, sure. in, in, in attitudes. And, and uh, I don't know anything much about what the, the literary production is in, of a place like Singapore. But I mean, these things are, are not exact analogies in any case. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 um, it, there, there is an issue, I, th I think, with. Um, identity and language in the Arab world, which is almost unique, actually. Um, and, yeah. um, and partly because the, the identity thing, it's not, it's not a single thing. There is a local identity, which we see reflected in the reinvention of Nabati poetry in the Gulf. And then there's the kind of overarching um, feeling that we're all part of, a, you know, the great Arab world. Um, I... I, I and that, that, that idea comes and goes. Um, it, it's politically sometimes very present and, and at other times less so. Uh, yeah. You know, Egypt has gone through many stages of being a, a fully paid up member of the Arab world and, and being very isolated. And that's even within my own lifetime, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of poetry, let's talk, a, you yeah. know, before we started the call, we, we spoke a little bit about uh, poetry. Sure. Um, and my my impression of poetry in the Arab world has always or growing up was that there is one type of poetry, right? Yeah. And and it, it looks and sort of sounds exact uh, same way. Obviously, that's not true. No. Um, so tell us a little bit about your work in that world because I, it's quite interesting. Well, um, the the thing is that you don't. You know, I did a degree in Arabic um, and I didn't have a clue that this even existed until I actually went to the Arab world. Because in, in the in the UK and in, in Western academic academic circles generally, there is no recognition of anything other than the classical tradition. It's exactly like the Arab world, exactly like it. Very few people work with what you might call um, non-elite culture. And there is a huge non-elite culture in the Arab world. You come to realize that. Um, uh, and uh, we're talking here about principally about poetry.
But increasingly now, it's becoming also in the in the in the realm of prose literature. There are now uh, only last week I was I was in an email conversation who, with somebody in Algeria who told me that the first Algerian novel written entirely in Algerian uh, Arabic has just been published. Now. Uh, in Egypt, there have been that it's a lot longer. I mean, there are 20. This started maybe 20, 30 years ago in Egypt. But there are, it's, there are there's now emerging a literary culture which is non-classical. But it, in, in prose literature, it's 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 in its infancy. But poetry is a different kettle of fish entirely. There is every argument for thinking, in fact, that the colloquial poetry, which nobody has much time for in the Arab world, has always existed going back right to the, you know, in, into the dim, distant, it's never been recorded. The earliest Nabati stuff we have in, in manuscript form is around about a 17th century uh, from, from Arabia. But, but um, all the uh, evidence is that there was, I mean, uh, Ibn Khaldun, okay, Ibn Khaldun, we, we're talking there, what, th 13th, 14th century. He talks about uh, something which I think he calls um, Hurani or something like that. Um, and, and he actually quotes in, in the Muqaddimah, this great work of, of the philosophy of history. He, he, he gives some examples of, of poetry, which is not classical in his time. So we got that 600 years ago. So it's always existed, but it's not been thought of as being respectable because it doesn't obey the rules of, of the classical language. Yeah. Well, um, but um, one interest. So nobody studies this stuff. Um, whether it's really seriously, um, although it started now, um, really the European Orientalism, you know, as it was in the 19th century, German, French, UK. Yeah, people did start collecting this stuff from ordinary people. And um, now uh, it's been realised that it, it, it's, it, it's, it's always been there and it's always had some very interesting functions. Um, and it provides commentary. I mean, uh, colloquial poetry is a form of speech. And the word for it, it it's called gil, qila. Al, you know, we talk about al-gal wal gil, you know, what was said, what was... But al-gil is one of the words, there are many words for it, for, for gal, you know, he said, that's what you say when you're about to, when you're about to quote a poem, gal, you know, he said, and then he said... So it's kind of like artistic speech. It's always been there. Yeah, it's and spoken it's, word. Yeah, it's but it's it's artistic. Yeah. So it has to obey rules. There's meter. There's rhyme. And not no free verse in this kind of poetry. Forget free verse. That's an yeah. English, a European concept. And of course, it was adopted by by the classical poets in in you know people like I don't know, Mahmoud um, Derwish or people like that. Say, uh, I, I mean. There was a free poetry movement where it didn't rhyme. But yeah. the stuff I'm talking about, like the old stuff, rhymes and it's got to scan. And um, the stuff that I've been dealing with is all like that. So um, the one you, you have on the screen there, Poetry and Politics in Contemporary Bedouin, Bedouin Society. This is just, we collected poetry going back, it starts in 1956 with the Suez Crisis, and it goes as far as 2003. And um, th I think in that book, there are 50, 55 poems by five different poets, all commenting on political and social issues and doing it in a very, very funny way. 
And that's that's the that's what the power of the word is, that a lot of this stuff is critical, is funny, and it's feared by the people who are in power. I mean, one of the most famous po poets of this type of poetry is an Egyptian called Ahmad Fouad Nigm, or Najm, if you like, Nigm, he pronounces it in, in, in Egyptian, who he died about four or five years ago now. And he, 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 um, pr he produced a running commentary on Egyptian politics for um, 30 years. He, got, he served 10 years in prison for doing it because it was so threatening to um, various Egyptian leaders, notably Abdel Nasser, who we talked about. Um, so you, th th this, this kind of thing, I mean, it, it existed, we know, uh, in, in 8th century Iraq, the, the, there was the so-called Naqa'id of, of Jarir and Farazdaq, two classical poets who used to criticise leaders in, in, in scurrilous terms in poetry. So it's a very, very ancient tradition, but it's continued, often without being reported properly. But in the modern world, of course, now we have the internet and we have all means. Of, so there's a huge amount of this stuff on the internet, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, also on television and uh, in books, it gets it gets it gets printed, but largely it's a kind of something that circulates. It's uh, you know on on um, slightly less permanent media. It used to be on cassette tapes. I mean, there was a time in Egypt when you could be imprisoned for having cassette tapes of Ahmed Fouad Nigam because he, he you know. Do, do you want to? Um, can I? Can I yes, read? Yes, please. Okay. That would be great. I was this, ask this is, I'll give you the context. This is Nigam. I'm just talking about Nigam. My, my Egyptian pronunciation may not, may not be perfect, but which year are we talking about? Th this is 1973. This is a visit to the to Egypt by the French president, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, a French aristocrat. Now, what what Nigam was interested in is why would a French aristocrat come to Egypt? What could a, he possibly have to offer the ordinary Egyptian? Okay. And um, uh, the answer is not very much uh, in his view. So, and he, th this was sung. He had a partner called um, Sheikh Imam who played the the oud. So this would be th these all are all actually songs as well as being poems. So it starts: Valerie Giscard d'Estaing was city batau kaman. Valerie Giscard d'Estaing was city batau kaman. Hayegi bidib mindelo wa yeshabbeakul legan. So he's going to do the impossible. Him and his lady wife are going to come here, right? And they're going to, they're going to, it's a, it's a proverb. He'll bring the wolf by his tail. You can't do that. <laughs> and he's going to satisfy all these starving Egyptians. Yeah. And it goes on. Yeah. <laughs> A television hailowin, well gamayat tatikowen, well Arabiat hatamowen, badalil 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 benzine parfum. Do you understand that? Yeah, yeah. That, you know, we're going to have a wonderful world. Everybody's got a color television. You go down to the supermarket, and uh, we're even going to fill our cars with parfum, French, yeah. instead of petrol. Perfume. Yeah. It's, it's, it, he's ridiculing the whole idea. Um, and so it continues. And uh, he, he had another one. Um, this one is about Mawal al-Ful wa One time, it, so meat was rationed in Egypt in the 70s. So, uh, you know, and, and people 
just couldn't buy it. I remember this word very well. Um, but Egyptians have always eaten beans and food, you know. So it starts off about it's a, it's a, it's a it's a, a satirical um, attack on government announcements about why there's no meat. There's all kinds of excuses, but the real one is that there's no money. You see, so and Maldu al Fulwa wal Lahma Sarah Master al Mesud. إن الطب يتقدم جدا والدكتور محسن بيقول إن الشعب المصري عموما من مصلحته يعرش فول حيث الفول المصري عموما يجعل بني آدم غول. <laughs> so this is how it starts. Some guy comes along. I, okay, I'll give you um, a translation. Uh, so this is your translation. Yeah. Okay, let's hear your okay. translation. Yeah. Okay. That, the beginning of that, this is the Mawal al-Fulw al-Lahma. Some bigwig in the government declared the other day, some Dr. Muhsin backed him up in what he had to say, that scientists have proved it true. Broad beans will do you good. Eat beans, they say, and yet more beans. For your health's sake, you should. Egyptian beans especially are bursting with protein. No beans can touch these beans of ours. There's fat in them and lean. Eat beans and beans, you'll feel as if you've scoffed a joint of meat. Beans make you sound in wind and limb, they'll fatten you a treat. They're kind of sort of veggie meat, kebabs are so passé. Eat bean, eat, so eat your beans, dear citizens, get high on beans today. Okay, so yeah. it goes on like that, I won't read the whole thing. But I mean, at the end, he, he, he basically says, Look, do me a favour, go away with your beans. You know, he, he said the very last line. The very last couple of lines in the Arabic go like this. Uh, so he's saying, um, you know, let's let, let us die eating meat. You can go and eat your beans. Yeah. Uh, but uh, don't come along and lecture us about about uh, this whole business. You know, it's funny, as you're talking about this, um, and you're saying that this, uh, you know, poetry and written word in this uh, register isn't taken seriously. In many ways, that's the, the fault of the publishers, right? Um, and obviously, the fault very much of the census. But the, the sort of two worlds in which, uh, two worlds that are not governed by those two bodies in 2022 or 2023 um, are three worlds, I should say, that are increasingly popular are one, social media, like memes. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Two, stand-up comedy, which is becoming increasingly popular in the Arab world. Yeah, absolutely. And three, rap and hip-hop. Absolutely, you got it, you got it. These things didn't exist even 10 years ago. Really, I mean, well, I mean... The, the internet as a means of spreading stuff like this is really very recent. Yeah. Stand up, um, there's always been kind of funny stuff, which has been like um, the Red Laham and people like yeah, that, you know. They're like more slapstick, like Mr. Bean yeah, style. Slapstick, slapstick, yeah, absolutely. That's always existed. But what you say is like stand up and hip hop, definitely. Um, yeah. Rai, as it's called in, uh, in North Africa, there's a very big deal, uh, sort sure. of movement there. Sheb Khalid and people like that. Um, yeah, 
th th this is all new and it's all, as you say, uses language in a very, very inventive way often. And talking about the internet, I mean, what you do get and what, what worries a lot of conservative people is that um, you get these funny language mixes on the internet where people write in Roman scripts um, yeah, because they don't, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a big mixed bag of no rules at all, really, um, for how you write this stuff. Um, so are there any of these societies in every in any country that are no taking a hard <laughs> look at this? In this? No, the answer is zero. I mean, what what, what the Majamia, the academies are interested in is preserving. You look at what their principles are and they're the very simple principles that new words and, and expressions have got to be proper Arabic, you know, defined by them. Yeah. And that me means the kind of stuff we're talking about is completely unacceptable. No, I mean, there is no way um, that, that because they see, you know, this is a profoundly political thing, really. This is the language of ordinary people. Now, do we really want the language of ordinary people becoming the language of government and, and, and high society? I mean, the, the, these are the unspoken kind of issues that lie behind language choice. Yeah. Really, what does, what does this represent? You know, um, it, yeah, yeah. I'm going to uh, tell the story from a couple interviews ago. There was this woman from Tunisia, Habiba Msika, uh -huh. um, who's a she was a singer, really insanely popular singer, sort of like a, the Madonna of the 1920s in Tunisia. Um, and she was Jewish Tunisian, extremely, right. extremely popular, yeah. um, and was a uh, anti-colonialist and recorded songs against the French. And sure. uh, many of the songs were supporting the anti-French uh, Arab revolt in Syria at the time. Yeah. And she has this one very famous song, Inti Suriya Bledi. And she couldn't record it in Tunisia within the, you know, within the sort of uh, confines of French rule in Tunisia. So she goes to Berlin to record it uh -huh. on a Syrian, uh, on a, uh, Arab label called Bidaphone Records that was uh, run out of Germany that produced tons of music that became iconic throughout North Africa yeah. and, and the Levant. Um, the reason why I tell that story is um, I wonder if there is a, a society outside of the Arab world that would be interested in codifying and taking the, this sort of script seriously and saying, all right, what does this actually look like? What is you know, what is the what is the the right way or not the right way, but the standard way that a author from Algeria could write an entire novel the yes. way that they would write on their blog posts? Yes. Well, there isn't. I mean, there isn't anybody who's, um, uh, you know, even really. At, I mean, the history of this is that um, there, were, there have been attempts in the past, I'm, I'm going back now to the 1920s, when there was a serious um, uh, proposition, and I think this was a Lebanese who did this, actually. I'm Said Aten. Yes, that's him, yeah. He, he, yeah. he actually invented a system for doing this, but he got completely, I mean, he, he got nowhere with it. I mean, yeah. uh, he, he was crushed by the powers that be basically uh, that didn't want, you know, the authority figures in universities and uh, language academies and such like bodies, they just didn't want to know because uh, 
at one level, it it, it it kind of destroys the unity of Arabic. You suddenly start writing in Roman or something like it. You're going to lose contact with 2,000 years of culture. You're going to lose contact with the Quran if you're a religious type. You know, you might not be able to read the Quran. Huh? All of these things really are the kinds of issues which lie behind this um, tension that there is between what language we should speak and write in. Um, I mean, if you want, I mean, I give you a personal opinion. I, 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 you know, I've spent 50, I've spent nearly all my life working, all my adult life since I was at the age of 20. It's been concerned with our world, really, either living there or writing about it, thinking about it. And I do think that one of the things that's held things back has been this insistence on the standard language. Uh, it's universally terribly badly taught. Nobody wants, I mean, it's, it's, it's nobody wants to do it, teach it. I mean, it tends to attract, I mean, this is, I don't know whether you'd be, you'd be able to put this on the internet, but it tends to attract the least talented people with the most conservative views. And, and the people, the real go-getters are not interested. They're, they're, they're too busy, you know, inventing new th bits of technology or whatever. And I do think it's kind of been one of the things, um, you know, freeing up the Arabic language um, so it beca can become a flexible thing, like the way you speak. You know, people struggle when they have to speak the standard language. It's not natural to them because they don't they don't speak it naturally. Um, some people can get very good at it. Obviously, I'm not saying they can't, but but uh, but it is um, a thing that's been a bit of a drag, really. Um, the fact that the way you write is so different from the way you speak. Um, anyhow, uh, that's uh, that's. Uh, you know, a very big issue. But uh, yeah. no, the answer, short answer is that there's nobody, as to my knowledge, that's codifying it. But what, what happens, um, Wikipedia is a good example. There is now Wikipedia Masri. Have you mm. heard of that? Well, it, yeah. only accept, it only accepts entries written in Egyptian. I mean, Egypt, like in many things, has always been kind of towards the front of change. Um, they were got into um, uh, writing in, you know, prose in, 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 in Egyptian before other people started doing it in other dialects. And this Wikipedia Masri is, is a good example of, of and this happened at the time of the Egyptian 2011 revolution, more or less. Um, there was a, uh, that was a big moment uh, because, uh, and I don't know whether you noticed, everybody remembers Ashab, Yurid, Isqat, and Nadam, but that was the only one that was in classical Arabic. All the others, pretty well everything on the, on the posters, you yeah. know, and the placards was basically in Egyptian. I mean, it, it was a kind of a demotic revolution as well as a political one. Okay, maybe it didn't work out. But um, that was, uh, to me, the, the linguistic aspect of that was very interesting. And, and, and the kind of word on the street was what brought, um, and there were joke, Egyptian jokes about this, what brought uh, Mubarak down? You know, it was Facebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was people posting stuff um, to each other, you know, as Egyptians talking Egyptian kind of thing, you know? So the, yeah. uh, who knows? I mean, nobody, uh, nobody sees any, any advantage. I mean, in personal uh, terms in doing this, I mean, why would you, I, I mean, you know, it goes against all the principles of education in the Arab world. Everything's got to be in standard Arabic, you know? Super interesting. Um, okay. 
I want to wrap up real quick with these rapid okay. fire questions. And then, uh, cause I could talk to you about this for hours, but let's try to wrap up as fast as possible. So yeah. first question is what are you reading or watching these days? Well, uh, boringly, I'm, <laughs> I'm watching a lot of Arabic videos. I'm doing, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm compiling, um, a dictionary of Omani Arabic, which has not really been done before. I've got a lot of my own material recorded in Oman in the 80s, actually, very old stuff now. But a lot of stuff has been uploaded onto the internet on YouTube by Oman Television, which is in uh, interviews with old guys and old ladies um, talking about what things were like, you know, before they had oil. So what I'm doing is watching endless amounts of that, making endless notes on it about the way they speak and what they say. So that's just more of the same kind of thing, if you like. Um, Very cool. What what am I reading right now? Um, I kind of read uh, uh, English novels uh, of various, uh, you know, there was a a Scottish writer I'm very interested in who won the Booker Prize, you know, stuff about working class Glasgow, (laughs) basically. Very nice. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I I don't read much, uh, you know, outside of, my, 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 my specialist area. Yeah. Yeah. Who would I like to shadow for a day past or present? Yeah. Uh, that's a good one. Um, well, again, it's the Arab world. Um, the, the figure who endlessly fascinates me is Abdel Nasser. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think I'd be fascinated to, um, if I had to have somebody around for dinner and for, for, I think he's a endlessly fascinating man. Um, and a man who, uh, Changed Egypt, really. Um, yeah. In, yeah. Anyway, what do people most misunderstand about your work? Um, well, some of my work on the Gulf um, has looked at um, language and social difference, and has I've extra- extrapolated from that something about the history of some of the less prestige groups especially the Shia of Eastern Arabia, who I think are um, uh, probably um, descendants of the earliest populations of the area. But as soon as you get into that area, people have misunderstand you and think, well, he must be supporting one side or the other. I don't support anybody. I just like to look and try and find out what actually happened, historically speaking. So, um, you, you know, to understand the ling- linguistic um, situation in parts of the Gulf, you have to understand the history of it and you have to look at origins. And uh, that is sometimes misunderstood as being, uh, you know, a political position when it isn't. Uh, I just, I'm just interested in what really happened and finding that out. Very cool. And then the last one is... Um, whose work do you admire, admire or are inspired by? And let's, let's make this more interesting outside of your field. Like, uh, whose work do you admire and are inspired by? My goodness me. Um, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm afraid it's another figure you won't have heard of probably. It's an American linguist who is now aged around about 92 by the name of William Lebov. Now, William Lebov invented the field of sociolinguistics in 1964. I can put it, or 63, I can put a date on it. 
He worked on um, American speech in um, the area, New York and uh, New England principally. And then he went from that to what he called the black English vernacular, which is the way blacks speak in the States. And he was an absolutely towering figure, not one that's recognized, I think, in the same bracket. He's a very, very different figure from, say, Chomsky, who was a former linguist. Lebov is the opposite. He works on, um, uh, like, the, language, the relationship between social and linguistic change. And he virtually invented all of the methods that, um, that, that, that we relied upon, really, for 40, 50 years. Things have become a little bit more um, variegated and different, but he was a kind of real, real pioneer um, and a great, a great, a great man, yeah. And, uh, you know, his work is unsurpassed, I think, in its, in its originality and excellence. That's what Amazing. Um, well, Clive, listen, thank you so much for sharing all your time and yeah. insights with us. If anyone's interested in uh, learning more, easy to find your information online. You have countless books to look through, uh, tons of articles, and you've, uh, you, you know, it's a huge pleasure to be able to speak to you. Well, this. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> I, I think people always enjoy talking about their own work and themselves. But I mean, yeah, I, I hope it hasn't been too boring, you know, because the problem no, is that another problem is that you tend to get very involved in your own subject. And um, I was watching you as I was reading, thinking, you know, how, is he going to fall asleep in a minute? <laughs> but, but, but uh, you, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it, 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 um, yeah, it, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikda.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.